This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's a, a great delight to be sitting here with Jonathan Aitken, who I first met when, we were work- when I was working at a, a poverty-fighting think tank in Westminster, and you had helped put a paper together called Locked Up Potential for people who had right, been in yes. prison. And I was asked to do that because I'd just come out of prison myself. <laughs> in fact, it was my first employment unpaid but still uh, after coming out of prison and I really appreciated the chance to write about prison and to think about it and it was quite an influential report that yes indeed yeah but also in your in that trajectory in that part of your life you mirrored Charles Colson and I was fascinated to learn when I heard that you were involved with that think tank that you had written a biography of Richard mm-hmm. Nixon and therefore you had come across Colson and later I was delighted to find that you had become friends with Colson indeed well, Chuck Olson and I are friends, or he's now, alas, no longer alive, but when he was alive, we were great friends, and I think it was partly because we discovered that we were perhaps the only two people in the world, and identifiable, that we knew of, who had had this extraordinary trajectory of, at one stage, being very high up in politics. I was in the cabinet here. He was rather more grand, a special assistant to the President of the United States, and in those jobs, wielded quite a bit of power. Then we'd made ghastly mistakes in our lives and gone to prison for them. And then, in both cases, from a rather low Christian base, we had found God and we had changed direction and we'd come out and enjoyed trying to serve God through prison ministry. Mm. Uh, I didn't know at that stage that I was going to go on to being a priest. That seemed far beyond horizons are my imagination at that time but obviously not of god's imagination but chuck and i we used to talk a lot about what an extraordinary route this was and he was enormously influential on me he uh, wrote me a wonderful letter on the day when my life kind of went up in smoke when i was caught out telling a lie in the libel case and everyone said more or less correctly i was ruined Uh, and chuck was staying in a hotel and he wrote me a wonderful letter saying no, you're not. If only you'll uh, do what I did and uh, come in faith and penitence to God and you will be changed and given a second chance. And that was about the only good letter I got on that day. Mm. Um, but uh, he, he did have a great influence on me. Sure. And probably the only one you really remember. <laughs> I certainly remember that one, yes. Yes. How extraordinary. But also to think that Colson, who went, as he writes in his very helpful book, Born Again, mm. he talks about the depths of, of, the, uh, of his, his sense of guilt and the, and the trouble through which he'd been. Yes. And then must have seen such darkness. But then to find that he comes out and is able actually to encourage, actually to build and to help someone who is in the valley. Yes, I really trained for prison ministry with Chuck in his American um, prison fellowship organization. There is now a British one as well, and in many countries of the world. But I went many times with Chuck into prisons all over the United States and indeed all over the world. Really? And I went actually with my wife uh, one Easter into death row in a prison in Texas uh, with Chuck. And we prayed with a woman who was going to be executed and was executed um, only about eight days later. So we had some pretty deep experiences together. Extraordinary. And, and well, it's, a, it's a beautiful picture 
I think not least because your your life now is speaking of you know it, it's it, it, who would have thought thirty years ago Jonathan Aitken the priest I know <laughs> <laughs> including me <laughs> exactly but the wonderful thing is of course I spoke to someone who was involved in pastoral ministry and he moved to London to get involved in in a political organization and everyone was quite thrilled about this because everyone knew he was an excellent pastor I spoke to him about ten years later. And he said, I'm going back to pastoral ministry. I said, why? He said, because at least when I'm working in a church, I actually influence the lives of some individuals. I thought this was very sad. I know. Well, I'm almost at my happiest when I'm in prison as a prison chaplain doing pastoral ministry for people who've sort of lost hope very often or sort of hating themselves or goodness knows who else and just to be able to talk and give some guidance. And you can see sometimes over the next months or so on changing direction. And that's a very, very satisfying form of ministry that you might, by preaching the gospel quietly and in subtle pastoral ways, really give people new hope and help them to change direction. Extraordinary. Mm -hmm. It's one wonderful testimony. And here we are sitting in the vestry at St. Mary Woolnoth, a room in which a young man walked on the 4th of December, 1785, with a note. Absolutely. And that young man was William Wilberforce. I, don't, I don't think that's historically. I think he sent the note. But it was a note from William Wilberforce, and it was to John Newton. And it was so mysterious, this note. It could have been written um, almost like an 18th century uh, John le Carre spy novel. It said something like, I need to see you in confidence, but to be sure that this must be kept secret, no one must know of it, it must be kept entirely secret between us. And John Newton must have wondered what on earth this was about. He had met Wilberforce before as a schoolboy, and Wilberforce by this time was a very young member of Parliament, better known for his heavy gambling debts in the gambling clubs of St. James's Street than he was for his lightweight speeches in the House of Commons. But he was a young MP, and not a very happy young MP, uh, but one of the things he was interested in was supporting the Clapham sect, who were campaigning without great success, it might be said, um, uh, towards getting the slave trade abolished. And then, anyway, Newton got this letter, and Newton said, wrote back saying, come and see me in my rectory, Charles Square, just a few hundred yards away from here. And when Wilberforce got to Charles Square, um, still in the same sort of cloak and dagger spirit, he walked round the square three times to make sure the coast was clear. Yes. What was all this secrecy about, you might well ask? <laughs> the answer was um, a fashionable member of Parliament, friend of William Pitt, which is what Wilberforce was, um, would create a scandal if he was seen... Um, going into the house of an evangelical clergyman. Unbelievably, but right, the evangelical clergymen were very suspect, mm. being sort of dodgy, dangerous, terrible phrase was they had too much enthusiasm. Right. So that was some terrible sin. Yes. <laughs> and anyway, um, but Newton did go in, uh, did receive Wilberforce. And Wilberforce said, most extraordinary thing, I've been thinking deeply about religion recently. I've had a friend who has instructed me. And I think I've decided to give up being a member of parliament and instead 
become a minister of the church. How do I go about this? My soul is in anguish, Mr. Newton. Can you help me to get into the church? And Newton, with uh, great wisdom, um, calmed, I think, the rather febrile young Wilberforce down and said, now look here, you will serve God much better if you stay in Parliament, if you continue to campaign against the slave trade, and that way you will do much greater service to the world and to God than if you join the clergy. Um, it was an unexpected thing for a fellow clergyman to say, but he said it. And Wilberforce accepted the advice. And then Wilberforce and Newton, who already had a sort of rapport from the past, they became really close friends. And Newton was Wilberforce's mentor. And he needed a mentor because, uh, first of all, he thought of giving up his efforts to um, abolish the slave trade more than once, at least three or four times in the correspondence. And Newton was always there saying, no, stick at it, keep going. And he was a great spiritual counselor and mentor to Wilberforce and kept him on the campaign. And secondly, as though that wasn't a big enough contribution, Newton also then became, in the later stages of the campaign, Wilberforce's number one authentic eyewitness to the horrors of the slave trade. Right. Most of have been in the slave trade I didn't want to talk about it, but Newton, who had repented, um, went in front of a select committee of the House of Commons, and he went in front of the cabinet and the prime minister to testify to what the slave trade was really like. And it was horrific. I needn't go into all the gory details, but mm. uh, they were horrible. Mm. And they shocked Newton's audiences. And uh, Newton then also wrote a very powerful pamphlet called Thoughts on the African Slave Trade. That, too, had an enormous impact. And the tide of public opinion and parliamentary opinion did turn. On the whole, everyone was quite keen to turn a blind eye to mm. the slave trade because it was so lucrative for so many people and places and ports. But uh, Wilberforce's campaign um, changed it in the end. But without Newton, Wilberforce's campaign would not have succeeded. Mm. And therefore, I think Newton deserves enormous recognition for mm. what he did um, in the, getting the slave trade abolished. Yes. Everyone says, Newton, we all remember him for amazing grace, and rightly so. But that was, a, if you like, a musical and spiritual contribution. That political contribution to getting rid of the slave trade was enormous too. Mm. Mm. Yes, indeed. And interestingly, of course, Newton himself benefited from mentors as he was growing up. And you see this this picture of this. Often you see the way that work, that God works is the organic metaphor in seed bringing forth life, bringing forth fruit, bringing forth seed. And in the case of Newton, he himself had been on a ship in a, in a violent storm, expecting not to make it through the night. Several yes. sailors that night gave up. Yes, that was the most important moment. I mean, Newton's early life um, was pretty ghastly. He was a feral young man, um, ran away from school, ran away from home, behaved very badly, was put in prison at one stage, was flogged on the quarterdeck of his Royal Navy ship on another. He was thrown out of the Navy, got into slave trading in West Africa. He indulged in, by his own account, just about every imaginable vice in that, that terrible world. So he was, a really, he was a bad young man. Mm. And then when he was on this ship called the Greyhound, it was hit by an enormous wave which smashed a great hole in the ship. 
and everybody on board thought they were going to drown. And Newton, who was very good young seaman, actually was at the helm of the Greyhound during the worst of the storm. And he then remembered that his mother had taught him some prayers mm. in a church in Wapping when he was a small boy. And he decided it might be a good moment to pray God to save his life, to yes. save all the life, all those on board. And God did. The ship did not sink, as everyone was expecting, and it limped in a very badly smashed-up state into the port of Londonderry. And when he got there, Newton thought, after all, there might be a God, mm. and he said, well, I'm going to start to pray, start to read my Bible, and he did so. Mm. It's perhaps worth saying that Newton never used the word, my conversion. Mm. He always talked about my great turning point. Mm. And I think that's, to me, a ring of great authenticity, because although some people have instant conversions, mm. most people have an experience which then sets them on the long, hard road of really becoming a true follower of Jesus Christ. And Newton, although he started reading his Bible, he did not have a perfect life in the immediate aftermath. That's right. He um, went back to the slave trade. He was promoted to being a slave ship captain, and he made five voyages to Africa and on to the United States. So it took him some time before he saw the light and began to repent. Mentors were very important in that mm, journey. Mm. But in the end, he gave up the slave trade, and he, in his home port of Liverpool, where he had a good shore job, he started to um, uh, join Christian evangelistic campaigns, principally led by the great Methodists, yes. uh, Whitfield and Wesley. Mm. Um, and Newton was himself, quite early on, a soul on fire, and he started to preach, but in dissenter chapels, mm. and then eventually applied to a Church of England to be ordained. Mm. And after some considerable hiccups and yes. bumps in the road, he was ordained, yes. and he went to the parish of Olney mm. in Bedfordshire. Yes, and um, Buckinghamshire, yes. Buckinghamshire. But you do, he's, he's, the, the fascinating irony is he was not welcomed because of his low-born... Low, low and uh, it seems that he was—he uh, didn't fit the, the mould. He hadn't been—he hadn't studied in the, in one of the universities. Although fascinatingly, when he was shipwrecked or when he was on the coast of Africa, he would sit studying Euclid, trying to understand mathematical equations. So he was extremely intelligent. And also, a, a mutual friend, Marilyn Rouse, points out that numerous people would come to him with their written works. Mm. and say, would you please look over this? Would you mind editing this? Because they knew his brilliance with, with words. I think uh, Newton had a first-class mind, but a very no-class education, because he ran away from school. But he then became self-educating, and actually had a superb, both spiritual and mathematical mind, and great sense of history. So he was a, yes. a, a first-class mind in the end, but not recognized as such a... At the beginning, he hadn't been to Oxford or Cambridge, mm. anywhere like that. I believe Princeton gave him an honorary doctorate, which he refused. I never knew that. That's an extraordinary thing. Mm -hmm. But also, I was interested to read, they've lately published Wilberforce's Spiritual Journals for the first time. There's a fascinating moment where you see Wilberforce uh, speaks with John Newton. They sit down together. And uh, Wilberforce records from the conversation the only thing he says of that particular occasion, which I think was on New Year's Day, he says that Newton says that Whitfield was the greatest preacher he ever heard. Mm. And that's essentially the sum of the meeting. And it's fascinating to hear that this 
this preacher was had been so established by the example of those who had gone before. He is now establishing someone who carries on and carries on the fight. And you see again the encouragement, the provocation of an earlier generation. Yes, marvelous. Um, I knew some of the the correspondence between Newton and Wilberforce, which I some of which I published thanks to Marilyn Rice for the first time in my book, is fascinating, and it shows both of them in a very, very good light. And they uh, were absolute companions on an amazing journey. Yes, indeed. And that itself is a, is a wonderful provocation because we see so little encouragement of the evangelical sort. But it's fascinating that they have the clarity of evangelical conviction but also, I suppose you would call it the evangelical mode, which is full of grace. Mm. And you see this beautiful, respectful, gracious relationship between yes. the two of them. And when Newton arrived at St. Mary Woolnoth, as a recognized by a few superb gospel preacher, as it was called, unbelievably there was a petition in the House of Lords to stop him taking up the incumbency here. Good gracious. Why? Because the Earl of Warwick in the House of Lords and his friends opposed a gospel preacher being established in a church north of the Thames. There were no evangelicals north of the Thames when Newton came here. And he, um, among other things, was an enormous encouragement to other gospel preachers. Uh, they were quite around uh, north of the Thames as sort of curates and number twos. But, and just before he died, I had a wonderful conversation with John Stott, who had, in his usual scholarly way, track Newton's contribution to uh, evangelical movement and preachers. And Newton did it through something called the Eclectic Society, which he himself created. And these were gospel preachers, and they had over 100 members by the time Newton died. John Stott restarted the Eclectic Society mm. in about 1960. Mm. Um, so the encouragement that Newton gave to others Yes. was enormous. Yes. Uh, uh, Michael Morgan has written a book called Catalyst for Compassion, and each chapter uh, of, uh, is a story of a relationship, a friendship mm. that Newton had. And, of course, one was with uh, Thomas Scott. Yes, who, that was a very deep relationship. Yeah, yeah. and he ended up uh, preaching at the... Uh, interesting, to, in, in light of what you're saying about North of the River, he ended up preaching at the Lock Chapel behind what is now Buckingham Palace, and uh, he, it was just a little chapel, but it was one place. One place, yeah. They, they were um, well below the salt gospel preachers at the time. <laughs> they, they look at them today. Yeah. But it is probably true that churches like Holy Trinity Brompton and many other fine evangelists, they might not exist if it hadn't been for Newton's impact on the way the church was going. It grew evangelically because of that um, experience. Fascinating. And it, it, he's a man who's not from the church. Uh, having been born in Wapping, he's lived around the corner from a dissenting minister. Yes. Who later he bumps into again. Fascinatingly, much later, he's born around the corner from someone who he meets was the other side of the world. And, and yet he, he comes into the established church. But in a sense, he, he, he wears the clothing of its 39 articles and so on with, with grace and with effectiveness. Yes, and was very welcoming to dissenters in yes. Olney, where the congregation went from approximately 100 or so um, to 600, and they had to build new galleries um, in Olney Church. Mm. And indeed, when he came here to St. Mary Woolnoth, um, he was such a popular preacher that within months they had to build new galleries uh, for 
to fit in all the new worshippers. Mm. Newton used to be much amused by the complaints he received from the <laughs> established figures in this congregation who said, you know, they didn't like the way they couldn't have their front seats in the best pews because all these pesky newcomers were turning up early and <laughs> taking the seats. What a what a, a cultural collision. I know. And, he, but, and yet he transcends it with, with gospel graciousness. And, of course, his best surviving written works are... The thousands of letters. Yes, well, wonderful. Newton's correspondence, it's uh, only been mined by very few people, but it's wonderful stuff. Yes. Um, I very much enjoy a story of Newton preaching here one day, and no doubt pre- preaching an excellent sermon, as he usually did. But one member of the congregation was so excited that he went completely over the top, rushed to the pulpit steps at which Newton was coming down and threw himself at his Newton's feet. Oh, Mr. Newton, Mr. Newton, what a brilliant sermon, what an inspirational sermon, what a genius of a sermon. And Newton rather coolly said, Thank you, my dear sir. As it happens, the devil himself told me that a few moments ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, wow. uh, good, good reminder to anyone who thinks they've done a good sermon. It also speaks to a, a, a phenomenon we're seeing presently is that he has a terrible name. He has a terrible name. If you look up John Newton on the internet now, you'll find academic papers written by people who say, why would anyone venerate this man? He was a slave trader. Mm. And they talk in terms of the the horrors of the fellow. But the point is amazing, Grace. Yes. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch. No believer is saying John Newton was a perfect person. They are saying, no, he was a wretch. Well, absolutely. And I think almost the greater the sinner, the more you appreciate Newton's remarkable journey. But I use Newton as a source of inspiration in my work as a prison chaplain because, of course, I meet and have conversations quite often with lifers. And lifers who are murderers are very often, or at least sometimes, deeply repentant, deeply remorseful for their terrible crime of murder. And I always say to them, now, nobody falls so low and does anything so bad that they are completely beyond the reach of God's amazing grace. Look at Newton. He wasn't actually a murderer, but I think being in the slave trade and doing some of the terrible things slave ship captains did, such as throw difficult slaves overboard and so on, Newton was not far from being complicit in the crime of murder. But but when Newton wrote and saved a wretch like me, he was a wretch which people who've been prisoners myself can relate to um and that's the joy and the majesty and the glory of amazing grace mm. that it's generous and it can reach anyone yes indeed the true vibrant living gospel of the new testament it, it seems not just to be a box that one ticks in terms of this is my religion but it seems that when a person is captivated by a god of such grace and such love mm. it seems that when they run to him his manner with them his his style with them is unfair in terms of his blessing, yes. in terms of his yes. grace. And you have that extraordinary passage in Numbers, the eyes of the Lord look to and fro, looking for someone whose, whose eyes are on him, that he may bless them, and so on. Mm. And you see that with David. Now, I'd love to come on to speak of David, but the reason we're here at St. Mary Warnoff today is because, of course, we're talking, it's for the celebration of the 250th anniversary of the great hymn Amazing Grace. Now, it was fascinating in your book, you write how a 
For at the time, of course, uh, Amazing Grace was criticized for its enthusiasm again. <laughs> yes. it's, well, uh, Amazing Grace was written on January the 1st, 1773, by Newton in his uh, vicarage study, um, really to be a teaching aid, a sort of poetic teaching aid to his congregation. The congregation were not full of bright intellectual people. They were farm laborers, they were poor lace makers. So he kept it very simple. And of the 149 words in Amazing Grace, 125 are words of one syllable. So it's a beautifully simple hymn. It's also a touchingly autobiographical hymn, A Wretch Like Me, really resonates, and I think would have resonated with the congregation of Olnib. Um But uh, interestingly, Amazing Grace did not take off as a hymn for a very long time. Um, and Newton himself never lived to see the extraordinary musical and spiritual fame that Amazing Grace achieved. Um, and so when we celebrate, as we are doing, um, Amazing Grace here at St. Mary Woolnoth, it's sort of a bit paradoxical because yes. Newton wasn't known for that. Mm. Um, he was known for many other things, very remarkable things. Um, and it was sort of only posthumously that Amazing Grace... I'm imagining tonight what Newton would think of the celebration that's going to go on. My guess is, uh, and of course it's the guess of a biographer, so I hope it's an educated guess, my guess is that, first of all, he'd be thrilled to see this church coming to life again, building a congregation again, full again, with people wanting to hear about him and about his gospel message. I think he'd be slightly mystified about Amazing Grace, but if he heard that it's now the best performed song, let alone him in the world, um, I think he'd um, smile as he did um, about some of his other successes in life and say, well, you know, that's God's work. Give him the glory. Uh, and I suspect he'd be pretty chuffed that, uh, to discover that it'd become the national anthem of the civil rights movement in America and now you can hardly go to a wedding or a funeral or a political event uh, all over the world without Amazing Grace being there. Mm. Um, but the message, I think Newton might say, well, hmm, I'm amazed by all that, and it's God's work, but I did get the basic message right, didn't I? Uh, yes, she yes. certainly did. And um, <laughs> far and away, my favorite story of Newton is the story of him on his deathbed when um, a rather intrusive somebody comes along and says to him, knowing he's dying, and in those days it often took a long time to die, and they said, any last words, Mr. Newton? And <laughs> Newton says after a sort, sir, I know only two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. And that's really the message of Amazing Grace in another form. It is. And it's as wonderful last words, death words, anything I've ever Seen or read. Wonderful. And that, yes. along with Amazing Grace, I think is the message of tonight. It's, it, is, it is wonderful indeed. And it is, you think, I hope I remember that when the moment comes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hard to improve on that. I quite agree, hard to improve on that. <laughs> yes. And then the story itself of the hymn, he was actually preaching through 1 Chronicles 17, and it's the extraordinary moment of uh, uh, King David calls to himself the prophet Nathan, and he says, I, why is it that I live in a palace made of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of God lives in a tent? I want to build a house for the Lord. 
And Nathan says, well, do what is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But then the, call, the Lord calls Nathan and says, Nathan, you go back and you tell David, David, you want to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house forever. You'll have a son to reign on the throne of Israel. And, and of course, David goes into the tent, presumably, and he kneels down and says, uh, oh, Lord, who am I? Who am I? Yes, and what is my family that you uh-huh. should do this? And as if this were not good enough for you, you you've made promises for the, for the, for the future. And it, mm. it, it's it seems to be a picture of this unfair grace. I, I want to do something, not just that benefit me, which I ask God to bless, but I want to do something entirely for the Lord. Mm. And he says, I will make your son reign. And now on the throne of heaven is a son of David. It's quite an awesome mm. picture, isn't it? And, uh, and the story of the hymn itself, I, I read recently, it was a fascinating story. You point out in your book how, in your very helpful book on Newton from disgrace to amazing grace you talk, you talk about how it was the last hymn he wrote for a season and it seems that william cooper the poet and hymn writer with whom he had been writing hymns ceased to attend church for some time afterwards or never never came back again yeah. for the next over 20 years i was fascinated to learn recently that when cooper died newton was invited to speak at his funeral and he preached on the passage from Exodus, at the passage of the bush. Are you aware of the story? No, I'm not. It's a fascinating story. He said he preached from the passage of the bush, and he said the, the bush burned, but it, did, it was not consumed. And he said, my friend William Cooper has gone. And he says, and I'm glad of it, for he burned, but he was not consumed, for the Lord was there. Mm. And we uh, now know that in the last half hour of his life, Cooper was apparently overwhelmed with yeah. the love of God. Yes, well, they were an extraordinary couple. Yes. Between it's slight irony. I think they wrote in purely hymnody rating terms, hymns that were higher and better than Amazing Grace. Um, I mean, glorious things of the earth spoken by Newton. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform by Cooper. Wonderful hymns, deeper and meaningful. But Amazing Grace, God has used it and... Yes. Um, it's the most popular hymn in the world. Wonderful. May I finish by asking you a question, which uh, I, don't, I hope not to put you on the spot too much, but as mentor to people who are listening to this, what would your advice be to people who are listening to this, as broad as you like? I think I would say, from John Newton, learn the following things. First, it doesn't matter if you've sinned in a big way, messed up your life, if you really go and try and build a relationship with the Lord. He will welcome you, and he will use you, number one. Number two, you'll have no idea of how he will use you. Um, But if you look at Newton, he was used in extraordinary ways, and did so much, whether it's on the slave trade or on hymns or on his example and his story. Um, But I think, always remember, that it's not you doing these things. It's a gift that you're getting from God. And if you present yourself humbly, penitently, in a place where you can receive that gift. Like the prodigal son, you return. God will do something wonderful in your life, as he did with John Newton. That would be my message, I think. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It's wonderful to have this time with you, Jonathan. Thank you very much for, for speaking with us. And the book, which I would recommend to people on Newton, which Jonathan has written, is From Disgrace to For more to episodes of the Grace. Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org. 